If you'd like to get your Bibles out, we're going to be in Ephesians 1. Today we are going to finish this sermon series we started about five, six weeks ago and uh, that we're calling... Uh, that we're calling One True Sentence, to use Ernest Hemingway's quote, and we're looking at different parts of the Gospel from this one sentence in Ephesians 1. So I'm going to go and read that sentence again one last time, and, uh, and you can follow along. This is Ephesians 1. We'll start in verse 3. And then if you missed any of the sermons, they're all available online. You're welcome to check them out if there's a particular part of it that interests you. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that, he, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of His glory. Well, that's the whole passage, and so we talked about such things as God being blessed, God being happy in Himself, and out of that happiness creating the world and eventually redeeming the world as well. We talked about us being chosen, grace being deliberately given to us and welcomed into God's family through adoption. And then we talked about redemption, God sending His Son to spill His blood on our behalf so we could be forgiven and made righteous before Him. And then last week, we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit, how the Spirit seals us, giving us a mark that we are His, we're God's children, we're part of His family. So today we're going to focus on verses 9 and 10, and that's our kind of last sermon, final sermon, we're going to focus on the big picture things. Verses 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Well, just so we are all on the same page, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that at some point, a mystery is revealed by God. And this mystery is something that is revealed only in Christ. And thus, apart from Christ, it remains a secret, remains a mystery. And here is what's revealed. God plans to unite everything in Christ. All creation will be restored. It will be realigned under the rule of Christ sometime in the future. So we're talking about this final goal of the Gospel. 
reconciliation of the whole creation to God and Christ. Not just individuals, this is what we've focused on so far, not just particular people being saved, but the whole creation being reunited, restored, reconciled again to God through Christ. And this final reconciliation, though it was already initiated in the birth and death and resurrection of Christ, is yet to come according to God's timing and purpose. It will happen when Jesus returns in glory and establishes his perfect rule over all of his creation. Now, this is how I'd like to work through this passage. I'm going to focus on this idea of a mystery, or a puzzle, a problem, or a struggle, or a secret that is revealed to us. And then I'd like to show you how this mystery is solved in the Gospel. So there is something secretive, there's something unusual, there's something puzzling about this world that we live in, and then the Gospel solves this mystery to us, and then lastly we'll look at how we are to live in light of this mystery and its solution. So here's our outline. First, let's look at the mystery described. Secondly, at the mystery solved in the Gospel. And lastly, the mystery applied. Let's describe it, solve it, and apply it. Now, when Paul says to unite all things in Christ, he uses the word that means to sum up or to gather things up, to bring things into harmony. This tells us that the world as it is now, as we experience it now, is not summed up. It's not gathered up. It's not united under Christ. In fact, it is fragmented. It's divided. It's, it's off. It's not aligned properly. So to put it differently, things just don't seem to add up in this life, in this world. Now, I think we all sense that. I think we all deal with things in life that don't seem to make sense. I think we're all struggling to figure out how this life is supposed to work, how this world is supposed to be, and so we are puzzled. We can't quite find a suitable explanation as to why the world is the way it is. And so it remains, for most of us, a pesky mystery. Now granted, many of us choose not to think about it. Many of us choose to focus on trivial things of life and enjoy food and and family, and and work, and not think too much about the bigger things of life. But even so, I think even in those everyday trivial pursuits, no pun intended, we, we still struggle with these things. We're still trying to figure out how do those things fit in? How does family, and work, and, and joy fit into this life? But we all feel that something is missing, and we all struggle to explain what's missing. We all feel that something is present here that maybe shouldn't be here. We all try to explain what that is. So let me press you a little bit. If you haven't given much thought to these questions, I'd like to make you think this morning. I'd like to to have you reason with me. And let's look at what's missing. Why do we all feel that something is missing? Let's also look at what's here that maybe shouldn't be here. Because I think we all feel those, those two realities. We feel that something isn't here that should be and then something is here that shouldn't be. So what's missing? Well, to put it bluntly, happiness. Happiness is missing. Why is it so hard for us to be happy? Why is it that so many of us are chasing happiness? In whatever way that you're doing it, whether through work or, or love or friendship or money, whatever you're doing, but 
Why is it so hard for us to get it? And why is it that at the time where you feel like you finally got it, it slips away? It never seems to last. It seems to be just a moment. Um, if you're familiar with the show Mad Men, I'm going to quote Don Draper, which I understand. It gives me no credibility. I'm quoting a fictional character known for his moral ambiguity, uh, but nonetheless, I think it expresses what many of us feel. Don Draper said, what is happiness? It is a moment before you need more happiness. Happiness is just a moment before you need more happiness. Isn't that true? Haven't you sensed that when, when, when you feel like you get to the point where you get something that you've been pursuing and you got it and then you realize you need something else right away? Inevitably, there comes that moment where, where you feel like, I can't be content with this anymore. Even though I thought I could, even though I thought if I get this, if I only resolve this conflict or, or get this, this thing or, or, or get this person in my life or this person gets their life together, whatever that is, and you get to the point where it happens, thing that you've been anticipated, and then the, the very next moment you realize you're not completely happy and in fact you need something else to make you happy. You get that one moment of contentment, if you're lucky. And then inevitably comes the realization that you need something else to be happy again. And you need it now, because you're no longer happy. Have you ever wondered about that? Why is that that we can't seem to find total fulfillment? Partial, sure, but not total fulfillment. Not total contentment. Not total lasting happiness. It's like we're longing for something that is missing from this world. Don't you feel that? That something is just not here that should be here, but it's just it's not here? And you're constantly pursuing that, but you can't quite get it? C.S. Lewis, and I'll quote C.S. Lewis a couple of times in the sermon, C.S. Lewis says this, he says, Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. Lewis says, I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays, or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. Do you see the problem with this world, this mystery, this puzzle? How can we explain this? How can you explain that you are wired a certain way to pursue these things and instinctively you know that those things should give you happiness and they never do? And so you continue to pursue other things hoping that these mysterious longings will one day be fulfilled and yet the older you grow, the more you realize it's just not 
possible in this world. So something is missing here. But there's something here also that we have a problem with. And that something is pain and suffering and death. Not just a problem what's not here, but it's a problem of what it is, what's here and what we're dealing with. There's an inescapable experience of pain and suffering for all human beings. And this is a huge problem for religious people. If you're a religious person, I'm not talking specifically about Christians, but if you're a religious person, if your worldview has to do with a God or something that created this world, and this God guides it and governs it in a loving way, how do you explain suffering? How do you explain pain? Because you know from experience that religious people suffer no less than non-religious people. Atheists, agnostics, and religious people alike suffer. Alike they die. Alike they experience pain. So how can it be if you believe that God has created this world and and it's a good thing, and God is good and loving, and yet you have these things in this world that you can't quite explain. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's the question that comes up all the time. Why is it that if you're a religious person and you're pursuing God and bad things still happen to you? How can you fit it into your worldview? How can you explain that? Now, if you're not religious, you know, you may say, well, I can explain suffering and pain and death, of course. If you're a secular person that thinks there is no God and the world is evolving and developing, it's kind of on its own, without any loving direction or personal help, then the presence of suffering, pain, and death is easily explained, right? Because it's natural, it's normal. If you believe that, that there is this process of change that is constantly happening in this world, then of course, inevitably, some things will, be, will fall away and others will come to prominence. And there's, a, there's a sort of this natural selection that happens. And survival of the fittest happens because that's how nature itself governs itself. And so things develop and death is natural because nothing lasts forever. It's a natural world. But new things come up. As some die, stronger, better things come up perhaps. And perhaps animals fighting with each other in, in, with each other in the wild is a normal thing because that's how how the habitat is kept healthy. It's normal. It's natural. Death and suffering and pain are realities that belong in our world. That's what many secular, non-religious people would say. Well, if you are in that camp, let me ask you this question. If you believe it's natural and normal, why doesn't it feel natural and normal to you? Why doesn't death and suffering and pain never feel normal? With your mind, you may affirm that that's just part of this world, that's part of life, but with your heart, why don't you feel it? Why do we mourn people who die? Why do we get upset at injustice in the world? Why do you feel compassion towards another person? Where does that come from? Because if these realities that many people believe are, are proven by science and the human experience, if they're true and death is normal, why does it bother us? Why doesn't it seem fair to us? Why do we cry at funerals? Now, a couple of years ago, at Christmas time, Wall Street Journal 
published an essay by Ricky Gervais. I'm heavy on pop culture today, I'm sorry. Um, sorry to some, others are happy. But, uh, Ricky Gervais is a, is a British comedian. He's, no, he's known for The Office, the British version of The Office. And he's done other things, so most of you probably know who he is. And, and he wrote this essay uh, during Christmas that was published uh, that is called A Holiday Message from Ricky Gervais, Why I Am Not an Atheist. Why I am, I'm sorry, why I am an atheist, why I'm not a Christian. And he lays out, lays out his arguments for a worldview without God, without afterlife, without religion. And his arguments are pretty standard arguments from his position. And what really intrigued me in that letter wasn't the letter itself. I've, I've heard those arguments before. But it was the way he responded to a question that was asked in the comments section of the website where somebody asked him questions about the article and he responds to that. And those are sometimes the most revealing answers because they're more spontaneous. And somebody asked him, how do you plan to celebrate Christmas? If you're not a Christian, you don't think there is God or Christ and there's no afterlife, there's no religious reality. How do you plan to celebrate Christmas? And this is what he says. Ricky Gervais says, eating and drinking too much with friends and family, celebrating life and remembering those that did but can no longer. They're not looking down on me, but they live in my mind and heart more than they ever did, probably. Some I was lucky enough to bump into on this planet of six billion people. Others shared much of my genetic material. One selflessly did her best for me all my life. That's what moms do. They do it for no other reason than love. Not for reward, not for recognition. They create you from nothing. Miracle? They do those every day. No big deal. They're not worshipped. They would give their life without the promise of heaven. They teach you everything they know, yet they are not declared prophets. And you only have one. I am crying as I write this. So as he responding to someone's question about what he would do on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve, he is obviously overcome with emotion for his mother, who is no longer with him. Mother passed away, and he has experienced all these emotions that's coming up in his heart. And as he expresses his emotions, he reveals, in my opinion, the inconsistency in his worldview. He's dealing very much like we do with the mystery of this world. Because on the one hand, he wants to affirm how natural and normal a mother's life is. He says her sacrifice is no big deal. Her death is final. She's not, there's no afterlife or heaven, so she's not looking down on me and happy the way my life has gone. But he also misses her terribly. He talks about her presence in his mind and in his heart as if he refuses to acknowledge that she is finally and eternally gone. You see, his worldview dictates to him that his mom is no longer around. And yet he longs for her. There's something in his heart that moves him, that makes him cry, even as he's typing on his computer, because he misses her. And in some way she is still present with him. And it's interesting that he is still using religious language as he describes his relationship with her. Now, let's read some more of his comments. He says, it usually gets me this time of year. That's what's so special about Christmas. It's when you visit or reminisce about the ones you love and reflect on how lucky you are, 
how they helped shape you. I remember the first time my mom took me to see a movie. I'd never been to a cinema before. I can still remember the place to this day. Everything seemed carpeted. The floors, the walls, everything. I had sweets and Pepsi and the biggest screen in the world, I thought. I was blown away. I lived a life in a couple of hours. When I thought Balu was dead, I was sobbing uncontrollably but trying to hide it. My mom was consoling me, but she didn't seem as distressed as me. Then, when it turned out that Balu was still alive, I was euphoric. That's his experience, and it's a sweet memory of his time with his mom. But it's interesting that he recalls that as something magical. And he's using language of worship. He's using religious language. The death of a fictional character made him sad. And the resurrection of this fictional character made him euphoric. He felt something. I think something happened to the little atheist. Something happened in his heart. There was a religious experience in the movies. Something that cannot be explained as natural, as simply part of evolutionary process. The circle of life was disrupted by a longing for eternity. Friends, if you are in this camp, if your position is that life is natural, death is natural, there's nothing beyond what we see and feel and touch, I don't disrespect your opinion, but I would like to press you a little bit on that. And I'd like to encourage you to think about it in this way. What do you do with things like beauty and justice and love when your explanation for all of them is simply that there are chemical reactions, evolutionary processes, and social contracts? Why can't your heart agree with your head? If your mind tells you it is natural and normal, and yet your heart rebels against it, where does that rebellion come from? Why is that that we can have a tremendous amount of compassion and mercy towards a person who is disabled, and yet science and evolutionary theory tells us it's normal and that person should be gone out of our society? It's hard for me to speak of that because everything inside me rebels against that idea. And yet, if I'm consistent with that particular view, I shouldn't feel anything. Why is that, that, that when you, you meet your spouse, or the first time you started dating your spouse, you felt these weird things in your heart and in your body? Can you say that it's just a chemical thing, just molecules bumping around? in my mind, in my brain. Can you say that all your marriage is is just chemistry to propagate your own species? Can you say that? I think you can say that, right? I think you can believe that. But does your heart agree? That's not what you feel. That's what you may think, but that's not what you feel. Things like beauty. Why do we think certain things are beautiful? Is it just that it's a physical attraction to something that helps are kind, or helps our society. I don't think so. I think there is something beautiful in this world that our hearts are drawn to, that our minds marvel at. And it's a mystery why it's here. 
If this world is just an ever-developing natural thing, why do we have beauty? Why do we long for justice? Why do we experience compassion? Now haven't you, regardless of where you are in life or your position on these big worldview things, haven't you experienced things like that? When you feel something, or you experience something, or you think something that seems much bigger than your worldview allows it to be? You know, we just dedicated two beautiful children. And so sometimes, if you're a parent, you look at a child and their smile seems absolutely perfect. There's, there's no blemish. There's no fault. There's no imperfection in them. And you look at them and you feel the perfection in them. It doesn't last long, right? But it's there. And when you feel that, you have to ask yourself, why? Why is that? That you think this eternally perfect thing is here in the world that has fallen and broken by all accounts. Or sometimes when you hear a, a perfectly funny joke. Have you experienced that? It's just, it's just perfect. And it makes you laugh uncontrollably. You can't help yourself. And you will laugh sometimes for several minutes. And you think, man, this is so funny. It's just so funny. How does that fit into my worldview? I don't know. I don't know why I'm laughing. I don't know why it touches me so much that I'm just laughing about it. It just seems so perfectly funny, and yet the world is imperfect. If, if you are a man who, was, who had a wedding ceremony, who, who is married, and you remember your bride coming down the aisle, do you remember what you felt then? Do you remember thinking she is perfect? You think that and you believe that with all your heart and your body reacts to it and you say, she is absolutely perfect. What do you do with that experience? What do you do with that? When you feel like this beauty was captured in that moment and somehow eternity was crammed right into that moment, and she is eternally beautiful. And yet you don't know where to fit it in your world because you know she's not. She knows you're not. And yet in that moment, something happens and there's a glimpse of something greater that doesn't seem to fit, and yet it's there, and you cannot deny your experience. When I think about moments like that, for me, I think, I think back to a particular sunny spring afternoon in Kiev where I grew up. It was one of those first warmer days in the spring, and the people are coming home from the train, they're coming home from work, and, and it's, just, it's just beautiful. It's, it's that first really warm day when you... You know, you shed your coat and you, you, you drape it around your arm on the way home from work. And people are stopping and they're buying fresh bread outside. And, and nobody's hurrying home. There's, there's this, this sense of peace and harmony. and People are talking to each other. Nobody's arguing. Everybody's just overwhelmed with this beautiful thing that is happening around them. And they're talking about last night's soccer match and discussing that. And they're, they're walking very slowly back to their apartments. And I remember being there and thinking, it's just perfect. It's just perfect. There's something about it that just touches you. And then you remember, and I remembered, that the city, the city of Kiev, is plagued with dysfunction and addiction and poverty and injustice. And yet, on that particular afternoon, 
something happened that allowed me to see something bigger than there was. And I don't know how to fit it into my worldview. I'm puzzled by it. What is true? Is that true? Or is what I see every day true? Which world am I actually living in? And so you find that something is missing. You also find that something is here that that shouldn't be here. Those glimpses of eternity and the suffering and pain around you, they shouldn't be here, and yet they are. And so you feel that things just don't add up. You feel that something is not quite right in this world that we live in. Something is off. It's not aligned correctly. Something is just not right. Things don't add up. And so how do you solve this? I don't think, I'm convinced, I don't think you can solve it through a religious exercise or religious worldview that just simply says that there's a God who's good, who created it. I don't know what you do with suffering in that way. Uh, If you are not religious, if you're a secular person, I don't think you can solve it with science either because you have to do something with things like beauty and love and justice. I don't think they fit in that worldview either. But the gospel, the gospel alone gives us an explanation. Isn't that exciting? That we are given this mystery and it's revealed to us and we can look at it and we can grasp it and we can say we know how this world works. We understand. We can live authentically and right in this world. So what does the gospel tell us? How is this mystery revealed? How is it solved in the gospel? Well, the gospel confirms our suspicions that this world is not the way it's supposed to be, that it is broken, unable to fulfill us, and that it is lost in some way. It's off. It needs to be realigned. It validates that our experience of suffering and pain and death is something unnatural, something that we do rightly rebel against, that it doesn't belong in this world, and yet it is here and it's real. How does the Gospel tell us all that? Well, Jesus came to save us. He came to rescue this world and eventually to unite it and to harmonize it and to sum it up under his rule, which means, at the very least, that the world needed rescuing, that the world needed to be realigned, that when Jesus came, the world was not right, that something was wrong, something was broken and fragmented and divided that needs to be united, needs to be brought together under his headship. The Gospel teaches us that sin has distorted God's original good design for it. So yes, we have a good creator, but we have a bad world. A good creator set it right, set it on the right path, and yet we botched it, we messed it up. And so what we're dealing with now is both beautiful because of how God created it, and utterly fallen and broken down because of what we've done. So we can look at the world and say both things are true. Suffering does not belong here by God's design, and yet it is here by our doing, and we rebel against it because it doesn't seem natural. Justice and love and beauty, those things are true because they come from God, and they're part of who we are. We're made in His image, and we feel those things, and it's right for us to miss people who are gone. And yet, they're not coming back into this world because it's fallen, and it's broken. The Gospel teaches us that the final restoration is still in the future. And so we are right to feel that things do not add up because Christ has not added them up yet. But he plans to do that. And he will do that. Radical changes are still coming. The solution to our mystery is that God sent Jesus not only to explain our existence in this world, but to fix this world, to save it, 
to restore it, to rescue it, and make it what it's supposed to be. And this fixed, saved, new, restored world is what we long for, is what we're made for. Listen to C.S. Lewis again. He says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. A man feels sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I think that's the key to the mystery of this world, that Jesus came to give us the real thing, to point to the real thing, to show us and lead us to the world we're made for. One day, all things will be restored, summed up, realigned, in Christ. One writer says this, he says, God hangs on this fallen original creation and salvages it. He refuses to abandon the work of his hands. In fact, he sacrifices his own son to save his original project. Humankind, which has botched its original mandate and the whole creation along with it, is given another chance in Christ. We are reinstated as God's managers on earth. The original good creation is to be restored. Don't you see how only the gospel can explain what's missing and what's present in this world? In Christ, in his death and resurrection, we learn that this world was once good, and then it was broken by sin, and now in him it is to be restored. It is my opinion and I am convinced that no other worldview can explain why we can't find fulfillment here and yet we desire it. No other worldview can explain while we admire beauty and strive for justice and feel compassion and mourn our loved ones. No other worldview explains why death is here and at the same time proclaims victory over it. Isn't that wonderful that we believe that death is a reality, but it is conquered by our King. That it's done away with, it's gone. And yet, we struggle with it and we long for the time when it will be completely gone. And all suffering will cease and there will be no tears and no grief any longer. No other world you makes this promise that is rooted in the event of the resurrection, in the historic reality of the resurrection of Christ, the promise that this world too will be raised from the dead. That all conflict will cease. That harmony and peace will reign. That all things, spiritual and material, visible and invisible, in heaven and on earth, will one day be united in Christ, the crucified and risen Savior of the world. That's the answer. That's the solution. That's what God tells us. He doesn't leave us in the dark. And He says, I will reveal this mystery to you. And you will know why you desire these good and beautiful things. 
and yet you can't get them here. He says, I am bringing all this fulfillment to you through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, and it will come. This world will be remade. It will be restored. It will be new again, realigned the way it's supposed to be. And you will finally feel happy in Christ. Colossians 1 tells us, For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. That's our hope. That's the solution to our mystery. That's how we make sense of this world and our desires and our aspirations and our frustrations. So how do we apply it? How do we now live in light of that? Well, if you are not a believer, if you're not a Christian, this gospel, this solution to this mystery confronts you. And it confronts you now, today. Jesus comes into your world dead and resurrected and promising to return to set things right and says, will you accept this mystery? Jesus says, I will tell you how this world works. Will you believe? Will you accept that there is a solution to your frustrations and aspirations in this world? Will you believe in me? Jesus comes to you and says, will you believe that when I died, I reconciled you to God? And when I rose from the dead, I promised life eternal to you. And I proved to you that this new world is coming. And what you feel now in me is a foretaste, is a sample, it's a hint of what is yet to come. This mystery confronts you. If you're not a believer, what do you do with it? Do you accept it or do you reject it? How do you deal with this? Will you accept it as a key to your experience of reality? Would you believe that Christ's death really matters? That his blood was really spilled for you? That his resurrection really brought you up to heaven with him? Do you believe that in Christ there is restoration for you today? Even though the world is yet to be restored, but you can be restored today, that your soul can be realigned, that it could be made new, and you can feel different and you can think differently under Christ. Now this is a very personal thing. And I do not want to in any way minimize that experience. It is not as simple as I say it is. It's a revolution that happens inside of you, that the Holy Spirit does. We read that passage from Acts 2, when the Spirit comes down on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people are added to God's kingdom, to God's church. How does that happen? It doesn't happen because of Peter's eloquence as you learned when you listened to us reading his sermon, right? Tough. It's a tough going. But how does it happen? It happens because God the Holy Spirit comes in and he changes. And he proves to you that the gospel is true. And he proves to you that this mystery can be solved in him. Has it happened to you? Are you open to that? Now, if you are a Christian, if you have accepted the gospel, and this, what I'm saying now, makes sense to you, and you've accepted this worldview and you believe Scripture is right and the Gospel is true and that it does explain reality, how does it change your life? It must. It must change your life. But how does it? There's two things, I think, that must happen to a Christian that fully accepts the solution to the mystery of this world. On the one hand, it should encourage you to love this world, 
and to enjoy this world and to celebrate the good things in this world. It should encourage you to, to look for those glimpses of eternity on a sunny spring afternoon in Kiev, when you're dedicating a baby to the Lord, when you're with your spouse, when you have your first kiss, when you have that great meal at a restaurant. All those things are beautiful and they're good. And God made them so. And so it is good for a Christian to celebrate it and to celebrate beauty and to pursue justice and to preach compassion and say these are good things, they're right, and they fit. Perhaps not in this world, but they fit in God's economy and in my life. On the other hand, what the gospel does is it teaches you not to trust any of those things in the world and not to seek fulfillment in any of those things. The gospel teaches you that you are not made for this. This is too broken for you. This is too flawed for you. What you are made for is the renewed, restored creation that is yet to come. And so you long for that. And with all your might, you're pursuing that other world and you're pushing other people towards it because you know that only there, true fulfillment and true happiness will happen. And even someone like Don Draper can experience that. So it gives you purpose. It gives you intentionality. It gives you mission if you're a believer. To say, yes, we will affirm the goodness of God's creation and God's image in every human being. And yet, we will also pursue this redeemed creation. And we will serve others so that maybe they can too experience that. And we will point other people to Christ because only in Him this new world is available to us. What I encourage you to do, and I've tried to do that, especially in this series of sermons, is to take the gospel and to understand it. That's your first step. It's the first rule. Understand it. Grasp it with your mind. Wrestle with it. Be logical about it. Take these pieces of the gospel, like adoption and redemption and election, and put them together and see how do they work? What does it mean? But don't stop there. Oh no, do not stop there. Once you understand it, feel it. Allow your heart to engage with the Holy Spirit and feel it. Feel to be adopted in Christ. Feel that you are redeemed and forgiven. Feel that God loves you and you belong to Him. And once you've done that, then you have a third step. And the third step is to say, why does it matter? How do I live in light of that? How do I live as an adopted child of God? How do I live as a redeemed person? How do I live as somebody who experienced this intentional grace given to me by God? How do I live in light of the fact that I know that a new creation is coming, that God will unite everything in Christ? How does it, how does it work? So don't take just what I give you on Sunday. Do the work and understand and feel and then live it out. And it may be different for all, all of us, but there are some similar patterns that we all need to grasp. Well, we're going to come to the table. And if you are a believer, I encourage you to come to this table. I want you to be here and to celebrate with your brothers and your sisters this amazing work that God has done for you. And it is very appropriate that God calls us to his table every Sunday because the table is, a, is an expression of his intimacy with us, of his relationship with us, of his partnership with us. He's calling you to come and share a meal with him. And this meal is a foretaste of the great banquet that is yet to come in heaven. Have you noticed how if you read, especially read the prophets, you read Isaiah, and, and the imagery of heaven is, is sensual. 
amazing to me. It, it has to do with your senses. It has to do with what you taste and touch and, and, and love. And, and so this is a, a foretaste of that. If you're a believer, you come to the table and, and you taste and you touch and you see and you listen and you smell, this is what's coming to you even more so. And so enjoy this. Enjoy it. This is where the two creations meet. So let me pray, and then I'll invite you to come to the table as we sing.